The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Hi, Shades. Um, my name's Maddie, for those of y'all that don't know me, um, and I'll be reading our scripture. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. As we continue our series through the Sermon on the Mount, I'm, I'm trying to take some time along the way to focus in on some different details, details that are important for us to always keep in front of us, but we can't go over each one of them every week. So I try to isolate some every now and then because these, these details, they are important to how we interpret Jesus's words. And so one of the details that I want to remind us of this morning that we constantly need to keep in front of us is I want to remind us of the kind of heart at which Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount are taking aim. His words are aimed at a very particular kind of heart, and if we get that out of view, we will misunderstand what he's saying. His words, we've already seen, are aimed at a self-centered, pharisaical heart. That's a heart like the heart of the Pharisees, a heart that's all about its own glory. You remember the scribes and the Pharisees? Externally, the scribes and the Pharisees, they appeared to be all about living that righteous life. But internally, Everything that they did, they didn't do it out of love for God and for his praise. They did it out of love for self and love of being praised. For the Pharisees and the scribes, righteousness merely meant doing the right external actions. And Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is saying, no. I'm calling for a righteousness greater than that. That's what he says in verse 20 of chapter 5, right? He's calling for a righteousness greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's calling for the righteousness of a transformed heart. Where your external actions, yes, they're still important, but where those external actions flow out of transformed internal affections. You love God, and that becomes what controls your external actions. There's a connection between the outer and the inner life, and they're consistent. There is, that is the righteousness that's greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so... Jesus, with his words in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he takes aim at hearts that have been lulled into spiritual slumber by pharisaical righteousness. And his words are aimed to shake those hearts and to wake them up to this true, greater righteousness. And shades, it is critical. It is critical for us to keep that contextual detail in mind. So that Christ's words actually do in us what he aims for them to do. Namely, convict self-centered hearts and comfort Christ-centered hearts. All of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount cut in both directions. For a heart that is like the Pharisees, these words are designed to convict. But for a heart that is centered on Christ, loves Christ, has entered into his kingdom, these words should actually bring 
comfort. Jesus' words simultaneously bring conviction and comfort. But when we forget the kind of heart at which they are aimed, for many of us, these words feel like they bring condemnation. Have you felt that? Perhaps you felt that, like as we've been going through the sermon, like as we, as we go through the Beatitudes and Jesus describes what, what being a citizen of his kingdom looks like. You just constantly, you're like, I fail to measure up to that. You feel condemnation. Or maybe even two weeks ago, as we went through Jesus' words about anger, where he says that a heart that is filled with anger is a heart aligned with hell. Like as you heard those words, maybe you're like, that feels like my heart. You felt condemnation. Or maybe even this morning, just in hearing the passage read, I mean, sometimes passages, it's really hard when, when they get done being read and we hear the word of the Lord. It's really hard sometimes to say thanks be to God, is it not? And maybe even just after hearing Jesus' words about lust, you thought, that's my greatest struggle. Guess I don't have a transformed heart after all. I mean, I mean Jonathan, I, I love Jesus. I I want Jesus, but I still struggle with things like anger. I still struggle with with lust. And Jesus, Jonathan, Jesus seems to be saying that that means I am on a path that leads to condemnation. Perhaps Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount have even left you doubting whether or not you're saved at all. Shades, if you feel that way, then today, today, my aim is, is to show you that condemnation is not Jesus' aim. My aim is to show you that condemnation is not Jesus' aim. When, When we keep in mind the kind of heart at which his words are aimed, I believe we will actually see the kind of heart from which these words are coming. A loving heart, a heart of love. Christ pours out all of these words to lovingly convict and comfort, not condemn. So, here's the plan. Let's walk through this passage, through these words together. I'm praying, I'm praying that by the Spirit that we won't just see, but we will also feel. We will feel their loving aim of conviction and comfort. Look at it with me. Matthew 5, starting verse 27. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But, or last week I actually told you I think a better way to translate that would be and, and I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus' words right here take aim at all of our hearts, piercing them with conviction and comfort. And perhaps even right then, as I read it, you're like, Jonathan, I don't see that. At least not the comfort part. That is because, the reason you don't see the comfort right there on the surface, that is because conviction is where these words are directly aimed. Comfort is what they indirectly reveal. Conviction is where they're directly aimed. Before we're done, I think you'll see comfort is what they indirectly reveal. So let's take both of those things one at a time. We'll start with conviction. We'll spend a good bit of time there, and then we'll get to comfort. All right, so first, 
Jesus' words are directly aimed at conviction. Look at verse 27 again. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So Jesus, again, just like he did the last time we were in the Sermon on the Mount, he is quoting the Ten Commandments. This is number seven. And in Jesus' cultural context, sexual purity was prized very, very highly. A little bit of a different cultural context than ours. But it was prized very, very highly. And so most people would have said, yeah, I can check that box. Or at least they would have claimed that they could have checked that box. Seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. Check. Let's move on to the next one on the list. But Jesus doesn't move on. He moves in. Into the heart of the commandment. Look at verse 28. And I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is aiming to convict Pharisaical hearts. The Pharisees believed that they were righteous as long as they did those right external deeds. Don't commit adultery? Check. But to the Pharisee, lust in the heart? No big deal. Now we do live in a culture that believes that same thing. They come at it very differently. But just like the Pharisees thought that lust in the heart was no big deal, that is the same heartbeat of our culture. Lust is no big deal. Pornography, harmless fun. Sexualization, objectification of people, perfectly normal way to sell products. Who cares what goes on in your head and your heart as long as you keep your hands to yourself? Then lust is no big deal. Jesus' words, I've told you they pierce like arrows. I'm going to swap the metaphor on you a little bit. Jesus' words are like an alarm clock of conviction right here, designed to wake people up from that kind of spiritual slumber. In fact, in his words that we've already read, I would tell you he sounds the alarm that lust is a big deal. He sounds that alarm three times, just in case we're trying to hit the snooze. Three times he says that lust in the heart is a big deal. Let me show them to you. The first one, he says it's a big deal because it dehumanizes people. It dehumanizes people. Look at verse 28 again. Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman. Now we'll talk why he specifically says a woman here in just a minute. But the point that Jesus is making, the broader point, is that lust starts with a look. And what he says right here is recognize what, or better yet, recognize who you are looking at. A person. A human being. Genesis 1 tells us created in the image of God himself. Psalm 8 tells us crowned with the very glory of God. A creature of eternal beauty in whom God himself delights. And lust takes a person and strips them of all of that dignity and turns them from a human being into an object to be used. This is a creature that was made for the glory of God, but I use them for the gratification of myself. They were made to experience the love of God, but I'm going to use them for my lust. Made in God's image, but I'm going to dehumanize them to the point that they are nothing more than an image in a magazine or on a computer screen. Like, 
The broad point of Jesus' words right here is that lust, it's a big deal because it dehumanizes people. Now he does specifically right here, I think we do need to note that with his words, he specifically takes aim at men doing this to women. Why? Is it because Jesus doesn't think that lust is an issue for women? No, not at all. Jesus' words right here can and should be applied to all of us. Man or woman in here today, everything we've got to talk about applies to all of us. But I think, I think that Jesus specifically addresses men right here because he was confronting a society in which lust was socially acceptable for men. Even adultery, the physical act, was more socially acceptable and survivable for men than it was for women. You remember the story from John chapter 8? We call it the story of the woman caught in adultery. I don't know if anyone's familiar with this act right here, but it takes more than one. Where's the dude? Why isn't it the story of the man and woman caught in adultery? They let him go. His reputation could survive a scandal like that in this first century Jewish culture. Hers could not. I'm so glad things have changed. I'm so glad that in our culture we don't bandy about positive names for guys that are promiscuous, like player, ladies' man, while only reserving negative slurs for women that I won't even dignify by mentioning. And we can't pretend like this only happens in our culture at large. This happens in the church. I grew up, I'm a kid of the 80s and 90s, one of the best times to be a child. I'm of the Oregon Trail generation. <laughs> but that also means I grew up in the church when purity culture was at its height. Like, I had a purity ring, the whole thing. I kissed dating goodbye, read it, come at me, bro. All right? The purity culture is taking a real beating right now, and rightfully so for a lot of reasons. I'm going to give it my own share of a beating right here. But I, what I don't want to be misheard saying is that purity itself is a bad thing. It's not. It's beautiful, and it's good. But the problem, there were many, but one of the problems with the purity culture movement is that its messaging was pretty much the same as the culture's. In other words, it excused men and blamed women. Or it excused boys and blamed girls. The messaging that I received growing up through my youth group was that I, as a guy, just had uncontrollable sexual urges. That's just how I was wired. Thus, any lust really wasn't my fault. It was the fault of the girls' hymnlines. Jesus, right here, does not excuse those who are doing the sinning. He convicts them, and he doesn't blame those who are being sinned against. He actually protects them. He protects victims. We will see that even more in our passage next week on divorce. Jesus, in this passage right here, he doesn't go after hymnlines. He goes after hearts. 
And specifically, he goes after the hearts of men. Not because lust isn't a big deal for women, but because men easily buy into the lie. They did then, they do now, buy into the lie that this is not a big deal for them. And so Jesus sounds the alarm clock of conviction that lust is a big deal, brothers in Christ, because it dehumanizes people made in the image of God. And just in case we're all getting ready to try and hit the snooze on that, the alarm clock goes off again. When Jesus says that lust is a big deal, not just because it dehumanizes people, but because it defames God. Look at verse 28 again. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, that is a good translation of the Greek, indicates purpose. In other words, Jesus is not right here talking about just being attracted to somebody. There's nothing wrong with that. He's not talking even about like recognizing beauty. No, he's talking about looking for the purpose, the intent of deriving sexual gratification, pleasure from another person. And why? Because we believe the lie that lust will satisfy. Why why, why do we do this thing? We believe that it's going to bring the gratification that we seek, that it's going to satisfy. Shades, this is the lie of all sin. People don't sin out of duty. Sin because it's fun. In the moment, at least, it tells me it will bring pleasure and satisfaction. And at least for that fleeting moment, it feels like it does. This is the lie of all sin. But we know from this word that our desire for satisfaction is a God-given desire, and it is a God-satisfied desire. This word, cover to cover, testifies that our hearts were made to be satisfied with the only one who can fully bring that satisfaction, God himself. Even every gift that he has given us good gift like sex he has given it to us within a design by which it will provide a certain satisfaction that ultimately points us back to him but when taken outside of that design we buy into a lie it can satisfy by itself apart from god and his purposes and it can't we talk about this truth all the time ultimate satisfaction is found in god and god alone psalm 16 11, in his presence is fullness of joy no one else's Not in any lust. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Nowhere else. At his right hand. Lust looks at that promise and says, don't believe that. My lust says, I don't believe that, God. I believe that I have found something more satisfying than you. Something more glorious to gaze upon than you. Lust defames the glory of God. It speaks the ultimate lie that there's something more glorious and satisfying than him. Shades, Jesus is sounding the alarm clock of conviction that lust is a big deal because it dehumanizes people and it defames God. And one more time, just in case we're trying to still hit that snooze, the alarm goes off one more time. Jesus says lust is a big deal, not only because it dehumanizes people, defames God, but it denies God's design. It denies God's design. We touched on that for just a second, but let me show it to you in the text. Look at verse 28 one last time. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
something's been done outside of God's design. That's what adultery is. Sex taking place outside of the place that God designed it for, namely marriage. God designed sexual desire. It is a good gift from him. But he designed it with with a way it is to be expressed, a way that literally, when expressed that way, brings joy in life. Lust is the use, it's the hijacking. Hijacking is when you take a plane and use it for something that's not supposed to be used for, wasn't designed for. Lust is the hijacking of our good sexual desires to be used outside of God's design. That's why Jesus compares it to adultery. Adultery, sex, outside of the place God designed it for. Marriage. Sexual desire outside of the context of God's design is adultery of the heart, Jesus says. Shades, do we hear do we hear the alarm clock of conviction that Jesus is sounding to, to wake us up from our spiritual slumber that denies that lust is a big deal? It's just part of our culture. It's just a part of growing up. It's really not a big deal at all. Jesus says otherwise. It dehumanizes others, defames God, denies his design. Jesus says it is a big deal. And it's dangerous. more dangerous than we could ever imagine. Is that not where he goes in verses 29 and 30? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Gehenna. Ultimate condemnation and separation from God. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus says lust is eternally dangerous. You see that? I mean, he says right here that the end, here's what's at the end of the road, the end of the path of a life that embraces lust. Hell. If that doesn't shake us and wake us from spiritual slumber, of thinking that lust is no big deal, then I, I, I don't know what will. These words are aimed directly, lovingly, at conviction. And I say, I say lovingly because these words aren't meant to condemn us. They're meant to shake us, wake us, which means they're ultimately meant to save us. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. That's John 3, 17. And he did that, we know from the verse right before that, verse 16, because he loves us. God so loved the world. He sent his son not to condemn it, but to save it. Jesus, in all that he did, in all that he said, in these words right here that he speaks, they are aimed at our salvation, not our condemnation. They're going to shake Wake and to save, not condemn. Ironically, this is the point. Right here, verses 29 and 30. This is the point at which so many people start to feel condemned. Do you? So many people hear Jesus' words. Right here, 29 and 30. They hear how He says the end result of a life that embraces lust is hell and all they can feel is condemnation. 
Perhaps that's what you're feeling right now. Maybe you're hearing Jesus' words and, and your heart wants to respond. Jesus, I, I love you, but I struggle with love. So am I headed to hell? Jesus, I, I long, long to follow you. Maybe your heart says, long to follow you, but, but I gave in to looking at porn last week, yesterday, this morning. Jesus, my heart desires you, but lust has been the largest battle of my life. And so, you hear Christ's words, and you, and you feel condemnation. If that's you, if that's you, I have gospel. I have gospel good news for you. Because Christ's words, they do take aim at your heart. They are meant to pierce your heart, but not with condemnation, with comfort. Jesus' uh, Jesus's words, they're like Hawkeye's arrows. Y'all familiar with this lesser-known Marvel character? No? Okay, so Hawkeye's basically like the world's best sniper, but he uses a bow and arrow because comic book stuff, you know? Anyway, Hawkeye, he's got all different kinds of arrows, and they do all, they're for all different kinds of applications. They do all different kinds of, of things. That's what Jesus' words are like. They are designed, yes, to pierce every last one of our hearts, but in different ways. Simultaneously doing different things. Right here, yes, they bring conviction by taking direct aim at pharisaical hearts that believe lust is no big deal. That it's not dangerous. All of Jesus' words throughout the entire Sermon of the Month, they've been directly aimed at blowing those lies to smithereens, bringing conviction to those kinds of hearts. But if that's not your heart, then you are not in the direct sight of conviction right here. Don't step in the way of it. That's why you feel condemned. Those words are aimed to convict a pharisaical heart that believes lust is no big deal. But if that's not your heart, if your heart knows that lust is a big deal, your heart knows that lust is dangerous, and your heart longs, it wants to put lust to death because your heart loves Jesus, then his words are not directly aimed at convicting your heart. No, your heart's already convicted. His words are designed to indirectly pierce your heart with comfort. I want you to feel it. How? How do his words do that? Look at verse 29 again. Let's read through it again. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus is giving us new heart-shaping habits right here. He's telling us what to do to, comb to combat lust in our lives. Thus, stay with me, indirectly, he is describing what the lives of his true 
followers look like. This is what the whole Sermon on the Mount does. The whole Sermon on the Mount is a call into kingdom life. It's a call to be a part of Christ's people, to be a part of His kingdom, and it shows us what that kingdom life looks like. His words right there in 29 and 30 describe what the lives of his true followers look like. What does he describe? Does he describe a people for whom lust is no longer an issue? Does does he describe people who've experienced that Holy Spirit finger snap? And we talked about it, Mary Poppins. When she cleans a room, that's not how the Holy Spirit sanctifies you. Is he describing people who've experienced the Holy Spirit finger snap and lust is just out of their lives? No! What does he describe? He describes people for whom lust is an ongoing Holy Spirit-empowered fight. And it is bloody. Eye-gouging, hand-severing, bloody. He is describing living a Romans 8.13 life. Romans 8.13. If you live according to the flesh you will die. In other words, if you live, to put it in Matthew 5 terms, if you live a life embracing lust, I'm going to make peace with my sin. It's my friend. It's not a big deal. If you live a life according to the flesh, you will die. Jesus describes that as eternal death. But Romans 8.13 goes on to say, but if by the Spirit you put to death, that's an ongoing, continuous action, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, gouging out those eyes, severing those hands. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is what Jesus' people look like. They look like a people who fight sin by the power that he provides through his Holy Spirit. And in Matthew 5, 29, he doesn't leave us wondering what that looks like. What does it look like? To fight the sin of lust by the power of the Holy Spirit? He tells us it looks like Holy Spirit-empowered defense and offense. I'll take those one at a time. First, Spirit-empowered defense. This is the eye-gouging, hand-chopping-off stuff that everybody gets really interested in right here. Don't lie. It's your favorite part of the passage when you see it. Or the most confusing part. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. Now, it is at this point in the sermon that I would like to point out that as your pastor, I still have two eyes and two hands and have been guilty of lust my entire life. So obviously, I believe this is just a wee bit of hyperbole on Jesus' part. There are people that haven't interpreted it that way. Just go look up the early church father, uh, Origen. Have fun with that this afternoon. I'm not going to tell you. I'll leave it a surprise. Look up what he did as a result of this. Anyway, if Jesus was being literal, all of us would be eyeless and handless. I think we know that this is hyperbolic language because Jesus specifically goes after our right eye and our right hand, and in other places, our right foot. I don't know about you, but I have found that when it comes to lust, my left eye tends to be just as guilty as my right. Jesus specifies the right eye, the right hand. Why? Because those in that culture were considered to be the most valuable. People were predominantly, like they still are, were predominantly right-handed or right-eye dominant. And these were considered to be the, your powerful hand, your powerful eye. In other words, it's not difficult to see that what Jesus is saying is 
cut lust off at its source, no matter how valuable that source is to you. No matter how painful the loss of it may be, even if you feel like it cripples you in life, cut it off. In other words, put in place those defensive boundaries. Block the television channels. Or cut off the cable. Does anyone even actually have cable anymore? Cut the streaming services. Turn off the app store on your phone. Get rid of the smartphone. Now we're talking about tearing out right eyes. You can survive. It may be very, it may feel like it cripples you in the modern business world or just keeping in touch with friends. It may inconvenience you. But is it more valuable than your soul? Jesus says, take defensive action by putting good boundaries in place. Cut lust off at its source, whatever that source is for you. He says, cut it off. But not only that, he says, throw it away. Cut it off and throw it away. Now, I think, I think that that instruction, throw it away, implies the defensive strategy of accountability. That's the idea of like, like this ridiculous picture that Jesus is painting right here. Isn't that the entire idea of like you gouge the eye out, you cut the hand off, you throw it away so you can't like put it back in, like reattach it, getting rid of it so you can't go back to it. How, how do we do that when it comes to fighting lust in our lives? Accountability. Throw it away. And I've got other people that will not let me get it back. In other words, I think what's implied in the words of Jesus here is that we don't fight this fight alone. The metaphor of tearing out your eye or severing your hand, it implies taking an action that cannot be helped but but be cannot help but be noticed by others that are around you. And that's a good thing because we need the help of others in this fight. The entire sermon on the mount is a calling to us as a people to be his kingdom people, to be salt and light together. We fight to be light together. Chance, in my own life, the fight against lust has never been one that I could win on my own. Ever. It has always required, for me, is my weakness, it has always required the Spirit working through others. Shades. Please, please hear my heart this morning. If lust is your fight, don't fight it alone. Don't don't fight it alone. The body of Christ is here to help. bring, Bring your fight into the light. I promise you will not be guilted. You will not be shamed. Those are the things in the enemy's tool belt. Not ours. You will not be guilted. You will not be shamed. You will be met with the gospel. You will be embraced by grace. Shades, it, it has been my joy to walk alongside so many individuals, so many couples for whom this fight has been front and center. And it has been my 
joy to see them empowered by the Spirit doing whatever it takes. Eye gouging, hand severing, attending counseling, going to weekend intensives, joining recovery groups. Change the Spirit works through all these things. The Spirit works through all of these different means. And it, it would be my joy to connect you with whatever resources you need. There are great resources. It'd be my joy to come alongside you as a pastor, to pray for you, to encourage you, to share my own story with you surrounding this fight. It would be my joy to connect you with other people in this body who've walked this road before you, who can come alongside you, pray for you, help you. through. It'd be my joy to connect you with specialists and therapists. Shades, as a pastor, I'm like, let's put it in medical terms. I'm like your generic family doctor. I, I know a little bit about the whole body. There are brain surgeons out there. And this is all they do. I would love. God has so designed the body of Christ that he's provided everything that we need. I would love to connect you, whether that's with therapists or, or specialists, recovery groups, whatever. It would be my joy to help you find those in the body of Christ who could come alongside you, not only to help you gouge out the eye and cut off the hand and throw it away, but those who could come alongside you to help you heal and be made whole. In other words, those who could not only help you fight through spirit-empowered defense, but those who could help you fight through spirit-empowered offense. It's the final thing, final thing for us to see. I believe Jesus shows us right here not only how we fight by spirit-empowered defense, but second, by spirit-empowered offense. We don't normally think about this. Like when it comes to this issue of lust, we normally only talk about fighting it defensively. We normally only talk about boundaries, accountability. We focus on the eye gouging, the hand severing. And these things are important. They're important, but they're incomplete. We don't just need to defend against sin, we offensively put it to death. That's Romans 8.13, right? Put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. I think that's what Jesus is doing right here in verses 29 and 30 with three little words. Look at verses 29 and 30 for the last time. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better. Jesus says, those defensive things, do those defensive things. Eye gouged, hand cut off, do those things. For, for, because... It is better. What, Jesus? What, what is better? He says, it is better to lose something you think is valuable to you, 
to gain something that is of actual value to you. I know that's what he's saying because this teaching right here is one of Jesus' most common sayings. It's recorded repeatedly throughout the Gospels. All you have to do is flip over to Matthew chapter 18, and verse 8, and you will see this recorded again. And there, Jesus states this instruction positively instead of negatively. He says, cut off the hand, gouge out the eye, do whatever it takes, because it is better to enter into life. Not just avoid death, it is better to enter into life, meaning eternal life. In other words, Jesus right here is making us a promise. He's saying to you, I've got something better than lust. What you're being tempted to with that eye, with that hand, I've got something better. It is better, lose the eye, lose the hand, because it's better, it's better. I've got something better. It's better to enter into life. Lust, Jesus says, it lies to you. It tells you that you have something to gain from it, some kind of satisfaction. It tells you that to fight against it means losing things like eyes and hands and TV channels and websites and smartphones. Lust promises you that you will lose without it and gain with it. It lies, shades. And Jesus speaks a counter promise. It is better. That's the promise. It's better to lose the eye, the hand, all those things because of what you will gain. Eternal life, eternal joy. I have a, I have a pastor friend, Brian Walker, and he puts it this way. Purity and the pursuit of purity means seeing more, not less. What he means is that normally when we talk about the pursuit of purity or the fight against lust, we're like, can't look at that, can't look at that, can't look at that. And what he is saying is Jesus says, actually, I want to show you more. Lust is like staring at a candle when I'm offering you the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen. I want to show you more. I want to show you me. This is a promise. A promise that Christ died to secure. Christ died to cover every ounce of sexual sin that you have ever felt conviction about. And he died to empower you to put all of that to death until the day all you experience is life and eternal joy. This is a promise from the lips of Jesus Christ. And here, Shades, here is the offensive fight of faith. Who will we believe? Will we believe the promises of lust? Or the promises of Christ. This is our offensive fight. It is a fight of faith. A fight to believe. It's a fight against the lies of lust with the truth of Christ. We need the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to wield this word, the truth of Christ. We need the Spirit to wield this word in our lives to put to death the lies of lust. How do we do that? We, we do that as we read this word. We do it as we hear this word preached. We do it as we have the truths of these words spoken over us and applied to our, our lives through friends, through community groups, through the body of Christ, through counselors, through therapists, through recovery groups. The Spirit works through all these means to kill the lies and bring us life through the truth of the gospel. And this is meant to comfort you, Shades. This is meant to comfort you, Shades. Do you find yourself in a fight with lust because you love Christ? Jesus says, take comfort. That's what my people look like. That's what my people look like. They're an eye-gouging, hand-severing people, and he provides you with every ounce of power you need to fight that fight of faith. Shades, if you are embattled, Jesus' words are not aimed directly at you. They indirectly 
comfort you by confirming that you are indeed one of His people fighting the fight of faith by the power the Spirit provides. Let me end with this. Like, even, even if that's not you, you feel like, Jonathan, I'm, I'm not fighting lust at all. I'm totally at peace with it. I'm, just, I'm living a life just where I have embraced that. Even if that's you, Jesus' words still aren't aimed at condemning you. They are lovingly aimed at convicting you, shaking you, waking you to the fact that lust is killing you and he is there to save. These words are not aimed at your condemnation. They're aimed at your salvation. Shades these words, all the words of the Sermon on the Mount, they flow forth from the heart of Christ that bleeds forth love and they take aim at our hearts to pierce them with loving conviction and loving comfort. What does your heart feel right now? Where the Spirit is applying these words to you with conviction or with comfort, I pray, I pray that He is using it to draw you closer to Christ. That's the ultimate aim of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount.